Well, hey, I have an awesome history with Taylor and Cassidy. True story. Uh, they're the first Chi Alphans I ever met. So I came to Central as a transfer student in 2015, and my parents dropped me off on a Monday, and I was super stressed and super anxious, and I was walking to Stevens Whitney, which was my dorm. I didn't know anyone on campus. And I'm walking through the Cirque, and there's this cute little couple hanging out behind a little booth and this big XA, Christian Fellowship poster. And I'm like, friends. And so I just walked up, shook their hand, told them about who I was, and, uh, and obviously I got plugged in, and now I'm their boss, <laughs> which I'm sure they expected to happen. But hey, I just wanted, I wanted to share, as I was thinking about this, like Meredith talked last week about Epaphroditus and, and Timothy and just obeying the little things. And the reality of that story is Taylor and Cassidy did a little thing, and they stood behind a booth, and they just were obedient to the Lord Jesus, and this lowly transfer student shows up and gets to know Jesus through Chi Alpha. Uh, before I came to Central, I prayed specifically that God would give me a spiritual best friend, and the Lord gave me Taylor. Uh, he was actually the best man at my wedding. I think we've got some photos of this. Yes, I had hair. I'll just say it. So they are dear friends to me. I love them. Taylor's had a massive impact on my life. He's one of my best friends in the world. And uh, if you haven't gotten to know them, they are just wonderful people, and they're going to be here a long time. So you should hang out with them. You should get to know them. And I'm really excited to work alongside them. Capiche? Awesome. Well, hey, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. And we're going to read all the way through the chapter, and then we're going to read chapter 4, verse 1. But as you guys turn there, I'm going to pray for our night. Lord God, I really believe that you have a word for us tonight that's from your Holy Spirit. Uh, that is just for a lot of us in the room tonight, and, uh, and I, I don't believe that this is like out of coincidence that people are here. I believe this is like, I think they're, they're here for a reason, Lord, and, y- and you've got something really good to say through me. So, Lord, just hold my words. May, um, may tonight be a blessing. May our hearts be open, even if it's hard to hear. I pray that we would be receptive to what your word says and uh, what you want from us as your disciples. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys ready? Let's start in verse 1, chapter 3. Paul says this, he goes, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. I'm going to pause. Anytime circumcision is right, I'm just, we're just going to embrace it. It's kind of awkward, uh, but we should talk about it because it's extremely important to what Paul is trying to say. We can't overlook this because the beginning of this section is Paul warning the church against teachings of pointless suffering. This is very important. Paul, what do I mean, what do I mean by this? Paul is, is communicating to them, and he's saying, I'm saying this as a safeguard, a.k.a. he's likely already said this to them in person, but he's writing it again. He's saying, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. What's he saying? At the time of Paul writing, there were Jewish leaders, religious leaders, that were teaching and persecuting the church of Christ, saying that Gentile men, a.k.a. non-Jews, needed to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. And they were saying that this is a requirement for your salvation. And Paul is going, whoa, 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 whoa. They're missing the whole point. 
Because in the Old Testament, circumcision was a part of setting yourself apart for the Lord Jesus. And they are basically saying, like, this is like the physical, like, you have to do this in order to be saved. And Paul's going, they're just mutilating the flesh. They're encouraging you to experience physical suffering for no reason. But Paul wants to invite the church to suffer for the truth. They're putting their hope in a physical act where Paul's going to invite the church to put it in Christ. So let's keep reading. It's very important for me to talk about that. Sorry, it's a little awkward. Uh, He continues saying, If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so, somehow, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that to God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Nod your head if that's some good Bible. We talked about the beginning of, of Paul setting up this, this text about the religious leaders persecuting the church and saying you need to do this physical act of suffering in order to be a part of the kingdom. But Paul would continue in verses 4 through 14 to basically give like an autobiography of his life. This is like the most in-depth Paul goes at times in the scripture about his own personal testimony, and it's where we're going to spend a lot of time there tonight. And then he concludes in 15 through chapter 4, verse 1, to call the church to follow his example for suffering for Christ. If you guys remember our week one message, Melissa taught us about Paul suffering for the kingdom of God. You guys remember that? She talked about, she talked about how Paul's current situation was that he was in prison and how his posture was one of gratitude and thanksgiving. You guys remember that? He embraced where he was and took joy that he was suffering for the kingdom of God. He wasn't 
grumbling against it. He was embracing it. Uh, the week after that, Taylor talked uh, about the message of the suffering servant and how every story longs to be and live up to the suffering servant story of Jesus Christ. Taylor said that this is the greatest story ever, Jesus defeating sin and death through suffering. Tonight, Paul wants to invite us to respond by us, the church, expecting and embracing a life of suffering. It's not just for Paul. Suffering is not just for Christ. It's for all those who would call Christ their Lord. When we talk about suffering, I think a lot of us wonder, like, what are you talking about? Like, what is suffering? Like, my alarm clock's really loud in the morning. Is that suffering? Biblical suffering is experiencing the painful fall of creation. When we talk about suffering, the Bible says that suffering can be summed up as experiencing the fall of creation. In Genesis 3, there's three main relationships that suffer from the fall of humanity. Scripture says that the relationship between humans and God suffers, the relationships between humans and earth suffer, and the relationships between humans and humans suffer. So I can eat things from earth that will kill me. My dog can eat things from earth that will kill me. I don't think, or can kill him, sorry. I don't think that was the way it was supposed to be. I experience a challenge in my relationship with God. It, 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 I'm not walking in the garden like Adam used to. There are, there are temptations in my life that, that test me and draw me away from my God. There are times where I sin against a human and a human sins against me. Me and Luke had to reconcile this week because I sinned against him. He sinned against me, and we had to have an awesome one-on-one of reconciliation today. But was that the way it was supposed to be? No. The world says, in this state of suffering, you should suffer for the flesh, a.k.a. suffer for what Paul would say are worthless garbage things. Instead, Paul invites us to say, we as Christians need to suffer for Christ, our true purpose, and our true king. And Paul's testimony here is a reflection of how his life experienced that reality. He experienced the reality of suffering for Christ. And what's his conclusion? As he's nearing his life, he's, he's in prison, guys. He's thinking his life may be over. Like, it's possible that he might die that night. He might die the next day. And his conclusion is that everything in my life that's not Christ, I count as a loss. I count as a loss. And I count Christ as my gain. This is really powerful stuff. If you know anything about Paul's life, this should grab your attention when he says it's a loss. And I want to define that right now when we think about what a loss is. Because uh, what Paul is saying when he says that these things are a loss, he's saying these things hold no value compared to my relationship with Christ. These, these things, these worldly things, they hold no value compared to my relationship with Christ. Like I said, if you know anything about Paul's life, this is going to grab your attention. Why is that? Because Paul gave up one of the biggest worldly resumes for a life of suffering for Christ. Paul gave up one of the biggest worldly resumes for a life of suffering for Christ. In verses 4 through 6, Paul summarizes what his, really what his worldly resume is. He says in verse 4, if someone thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, guess what? I have more reasons. 
I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. What's he saying? When he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, he's basically saying, I was born into the perfect circumstances to be a Jew. It'd be like if two Harvard professors had a baby. It's like, watch Good Will Hunting. Will Hunting, he's brilliant. It's like, it's like this. He's basically saying, I was born into the perfect family to be the best Jew possible. When he says, in regard to the law, I was a Pharisee, he's, he's saying, I'm, I was a part of the religious elite. I had the education, I had the finances, I had the ability, I had the memory to be able to be a part of the religious elite. When he says, as for zeal, I was persecuting the church, he's saying, on the Jewish, like in the Jewish religion, I was the most zealous for God. Everybody, a part of my peers, they looked at me and said, yeah, that guy's the most sold out for God. It'd be like if you were CEO of a company and every single CEO was like, I'm striving to be as committed as that CEO is to their company. That's how people saw Paul. When he says my righteousness based on the law was faultless, he's saying I was morally superior in my own mind and in every, all my community around me. I was the most morally superior. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm born in the perfect circumstances to be a Jew. I have, I'm a religious elite. I was seen as morally superior, and I was the most zealous to God. Everyone would have said, yeah, Paul is the most zealous for God at the time. If you know anything about Paul's story in the road to Damascus, he comes face to face with the person of salvation, and everything in his life changes. Everything flips upside down. Paul would get rebuked and blinded, by Jesus on the road to Damascus and would come face to face with the one who he's been persecuting and everything in his life would change because of that. And at the end of Paul's life in 2 Corinthians 11, he summarizes what his new resume is. That was his old resume and then his new life in Christ, he summarizes like this. Th tell, me, tell me if you think this is a little bit better. Uh, he says, five times I was whipped to near death. Three times I was beaten with rods I was hit with stones. I was shipwrecked and I spent a night in the open sea. I was constantly on the move. AKA, he had no home. He was on the move all the time. He's in constant danger. He's gone without sleep, gone without food. He's been cold and left naked. And on top of that, he's constantly anxious about the church of Christ. That's his new resume that he counts as a gain. He says, my biological status, loss. My religious status, loss. My moral superiority and the, the view of my community thinking I'm amazing, loss. But beaten, starved, naked, anxious, gain. Because I have Christ. How in the world could this be Paul's conclusion at the end of his life? How could he get to this point and say, yeah, that's a gain because I know Jesus. I believe it's because Paul expected and embraced suffering for Christ. Paul expected and embraced suffering for Christ. Remember, we talked about suffering. Suffering is experiencing the fall of creation. Guess what? Everyone, Christian, non-Christian, experiences suffering. We experience the fall of creation. Aren't we all going to experience physical pain and suffering in our life? Whether it's personally, I can't golf without throwing my back out. I physically suffer. 
I don't think that's the way it was supposed to be. My mom had breast cancer when I was 18. I don't think that was the way it was supposed to be. Won't all of us expect to have mental and emotional pain and suffering in our life? A lot of us are saying, yeah, I'm going through that right now. Don't we expect relational pain and suffering as well? Don't we all go through this? And Paul's saying, guess what, Christians? You don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card. But you get to suffer for truth where the world wants to suffer for worldly things that don't matter. You get to suffer for the truth. And there's purpose in that. And take joy in that. Paul expected suffering. Did you know that at the beginning of Paul's new life in Christ, his identity was marked in suffering from the very beginning? In Acts chapter 9, 15 through 16, the Lord is speaking in a vision to Ananias, who's a disciple, and he says this. He says, and Ananias, go. This man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people to, of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul was identified as new life of Christ right away. He was going to suffer for the kingdom of God. One of the reasons I believe Paul could get to the point where he's going, what a joy to be in jail. What a joy to gain all these things. What? I believe he could get to that point because he could embrace suffering because he first expected suffering to be a part of his life in Christ. If you don't expect something and it comes, that's challenging, right? Or if you have expectations for one thing and then another thing comes, that presses on us and it's challenging. If I think my degree is going to be super easy, it's really hard, that's going to challenge me. I'll never forget Meredith and I going through pre-engagement and Michael talking to us about the big E of marriage and its expectations. And Michael talked about how whether we, we know it or not, whether we communicate it or not, we come into marriage with expectations. Whether we think, yeah, we're, we're going to brush our teeth every night together or we're going to poop with the door open. <laughs> Needed to get a laugh in there. I just, just thought I'd throw it in there. It's simple, but <laughs> whether we, we know it or not, we come into relationships with expectations. Did you know that the main, one of the main culprits of divorce is unmet expectations? A symbol of the most committed relationship. Christians, non-Christians, a symbol of the most committed relationship. They will split because of unmet expectations. And in the same way, if we expect a life free of suffering, we're setting ourselves up for failure. If we expect a get-out-of-jail-free card, if we expect a life free of suffering, we're setting ourselves up for failure. We won't make it to the end. We won't make it to the prize that Paul says, run for the race, run for the end, run for the prize. Salvation's not a one-time decision. It's the way. Go, 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 go. Don't give up on the first lap. Make it the 10th lap and the 20th lap, the 30th lap. But if you expect a life free of suffering, you'll quit after the first, life when it, the first lap when it gets painful. And I think a lot of the times we, we come into our relationship with Jesus and there's an underlying expectation that that level of suffering, that kind of challenge, that's, that's really for the like super disciple makers. That's for the like crazy evangelists. That's for the ones who like go do glo global missions, not me. But did you know that Jesus says all of his disciples will experience suffering? Jesus says that every single one of us in the room should expect suffering. 
In John 16, he says this to his disciples. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. In Acts chapter 14, 21 through 22, it says they, who was Paul and Barnabas, they preached the gospel in that city and they won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true in the faith. Guess what they say? He goes, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Salvation's a way. It's not a one-time decision. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13, Peter writes this. If you know anything about Peter, Christians are being persecuted and tortured and killed. And, and Peter writes this. He says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come on you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Imagine the glory of going through a life of suffering and seeing the king of kings coming back to rule on earth. Versus like an easy life. That's not that bad. We should expect a life of suffering. It's expected that we'll all undergo suffering. Read about any of your biblical heroes. You'll see in their life they experienced suffering. Ask anyone you love and respect in the Lord who's been following them for multiple years. They've experienced suffering. And I think it's one thing to understand the concept of suffering, but it's another to experience suffering for Christ. It's one thing to understand a concept of suffering. It's another thing to experience suffering for Christ. When it eventually comes, will you leave the race or will you stand firm and continue? Will you bail or will you, or will you stand firm? I'll never forget Meredith and I, we, we entered into the housing market like a long time ago, and we had this expectation that we were going to have this really easy experience of buying our first home. Everyone told us, don't expect that. It's going to be a long time. The market fluctuates. It's emotional at times. You're going to make bad decisions. And I'm like, wait on God. Guaranteed, four weeks. Nope, 14 months. I had to wait. I've never prayed for something more in my life. I've never prayed for God's favor. I've never prayed for generosity to be met with greed over and over and over. There's so many times that Meredith and I just we couldn't get into a home because of human greed. When I thought we were going to have comfort, comfort instead, we had discomfort. We had to move all the time. We had, there was two different places we had to stay for an extended period of time, and it was very challenging relationally, emotionally. We expected to receive immediately from the Lord, but instead he had us wait. And guess what? This was the first time I was tested to what mattered the most in my life. Was comfort more important to me, or was Christ? Would I count comfort a loss compared to just knowing Christ? Would I say, after rejection, after rejection, after rejection, after rejection, man, it doesn't matter. I have Christ. You may be wondering, Brandon, okay, so like we're expected to suffer. What sort of suffering should we expect? I've, I kind of broke it down to three, like it's so broad, y'all, but I believe that we experience physical suffering, 
in life. I believe we experience mental and emotional suffering, and I believe we experience relational suffering. Like I said earlier, physical suffering is experiencing the body dying, basically. Wasn't supposed to be, but I lost my hair. I don't think it was supposed to be that way. <laughs> my back's thrown out when I golf too much. I don't think it was supposed to be that way. We see family members pass away. We, we experience death. What? It wasn't the way it was supposed to be. What does that do? It, it brings us into mental and emotional suffering. Many of us have mental health struggles that are real. I struggle with anxiety every single day. It's not fun. I suffer every day from mental and emotional pain. Don't think it was the way it's supposed to be. We also experience relational suffering. How many of us know that there's relational tension and conflicts that we have because of the fall of creation? We hurt one another. Others hurt us. We sin against people. People sin against us. Sometimes they don't want to reconcile. We experience rejection for our faith. Some, of us, some who would say, like, yeah, I loved you, like, before Christ, and you're like, I'm following Jesus. They're like, I don't like you anymore. We should expect suffering. We should expect relational suffering. Do you guys know that it's common for parents not to really understand your commitment to Jesus? It's common for your parents to wrestle and struggle with why you're so committed to this club, why you're so committed to Christ. That's normal. A lot of us do support raising for missions. We, we raise monthly amounts of money. I had a family member go, I completely disagree with your life choices, and I'm going to tell the whole family because I wanted to serve Christ, experience relational suffering. Have you experienced anything like that because of Christ? Paul says we should expect suffering, and I believe that's what leads us to embracing suffering. If we expect suffering, then we need to embrace suffering. So I want to ask, what do we do and what do you do right now when you face hard things? What do you do right now? How do you respond when you face hard things? When you face the reality of suffering, the reality of creation's fall, how do you respond? I'm going to reread verses 8 through 11. We're going to see Paul's response to embracing suffering. So powerful. He says in verse 8, he starts, he goes, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow, somehow, attaining to the resurrection of the dead. I want to highlight some of Paul's words that I, I just found really powerful. One of the things he says is, he wants to know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Not knowing of, knowing Christ, my Lord. Do you think that this language at the, at the end of Paul's life, he's, he's suffering, he's in, he's in jail, he's, he could be executed the next day. Do you think that he came to this conclusion based off of his first interaction with Jesus on the road to Damascus? I highly doubt it. Because he comes face to face with a person of salvation, he's blinded, and he realizes everything I've been doing oh, it doesn't matter at all. Oh my gosh. 
Do you think you're going to go, yo, I know that person. Come on. <laughs> like when I met Taylor and Cassie the first time behind the booth, that I go to Stevens Whitney and go, man, I know the Griffiths. Let's go. What a joy. No, I'm like, I know of them. They're pretty cool. Like, I know of them, but do I, do I know them? No. Paul's words here, they reflect a relationship that's continually growing and has grown that's ultimately going to result in eternity. Say that again. Paul's words of knowing Christ, they reflect a relationship that's continually growing and has grown, and it's ultimately going to result in eternity. Some way I'm going to resurrect from the dead. That's what he says. If you know anything about Paul's life, you'll read about what that entailed in his relationship with God. What did his, his continual relationship entail? What did that look like? Well, Paul experienced personal healing from Jesus. So like I said, he's blinded in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus, and then his eyes are restored later. Jesus heals his vision. Another story is him. He's, he's, he's speaking the gospel to a tribe. He's bitten by a snake. The whole tribe goes, that dude's dead for sure. That guy's dead. No, Paul just keeps preaching, and he survives, and they're like, you are a god. He's like, no, let me tell you about God. He experienced personal healing. Have you experienced personal healing from God? Have you ever asked for that? Another way that we see his relationship with God is he, he personally witnessed the kingdom of God expanding. If you want to read an awesome chapter in the Bible about this, read Acts chapter 16. Paul personally witnessed the kingdom of God expanding. We've been talking about this in discipleship class. We've only one, one weekend, but we're going to continue talking about the kingdom of God. Paul is experiencing the kingdom expanding. Could you imagine how pow powerful it would be to see somebody enter into the kingdom of God, to see a, a, someone in your core who maybe doesn't know Jesus, to see a, like a roommate or a friend or family follow Jesus. How powerful that you're like, whoa, God is moving outside of just me. I'm seeing the kingdom move. That's going to affect our relationship with Jesus. Not only this, but Paul had a personal prayer life. He, he would say in 1 Corinthians, I boast because I pray in tongues more than all of you. He's like, I pray all the time. I'm talking to Jesus all the time. And the next thing is he received direction from the Holy Spirit. This was so common in Paul's life. He was constantly receiving direction from the Holy Spirit. How powerful would it be to receive direction from the Holy Spirit, to be like, what, Lord, are we doing today? Or what are we doing in my future, Lord? And I'm, I'm so on board, I want to hear from you. And to have God show up and direct you, you're like, yes, I know this guy. He's showing up. I want to ask you, as you think about knowing Christ, I'd just love to ask, how are you creating space to know God? How are you creating space to know God? Relationships go both ways. Are you actively praying and listening to God? Do you pray and, and receive direction from the Holy Spirit about who needs to hear the gospel? Which of your friends should you pray for physical healing? I want to ask, do you know Christ or do you know of Christ? Quite a difference. Do you know Christ or do you know of Christ? There's another thing that Paul highlights um, or says that I want to highlight in that verse 8. He says, says that I may gain Christ. Count all the loss that I may gain Christ. It's so simple, but I just want to think about it. He just wants Jesus. In chapter 1, 
Verse 21, Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So he's saying death is a gain. And what is death? Death is Christ. It's just knowing Jesus. It's not like this eternal paradise with unlimited golf courses and no back pain. And that's like what I'm striving for. I just want the, the glory. I just want, I just want the like freedom from suffering. No, he's like, I just want Christ. Do you know Jesus that way? I just want him. I don't, I don't need the benefits. I, don't need, I just want to see my king, my king of glory. I want to just know my king. I want to ask tonight, what, what does suffering do to the believer? Okay, suffering's a part of our life. We're expected. We're to embrace it. If it's like, oh, man, okay, well, like, good night. That might be hard. We need to, we need to really wrestle with the why. Because God has a purpose for why we suffer. Why God allows suffering. The first reason I believe that we experience suffering is that suffering brings us into the full reflection of Jesus. Suffering brings us into the full reflection of Jesus. In Romans 5, 1 through 4, Paul summarizes it this way. He says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we gain access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. But not only so, we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance and character and character produces hope. Do you know that God cares about your character? We participate in the sufferings of Christ to become like Christ, right? We experience suffering to become more like Jesus. The next thing that suffering does is it tests our authenticity to Christ. Suffering tests our authenticity to Christ. How will we respond if our life gets harder when we follow Jesus? How will we respond if our life gets harder when we start to follow Jesus? Did you know that suffering tests what's under the surface of your heart? Whether you know it or not, suffering will just uproot what is in your heart. Do I love God for God? Or do I love what I expect to get from him? If I don't get it, Am I still happy with him? Or am I mad because I didn't get what I wanted? Well, who do you love? Do you, do you love him or do you love what you get from him? For example, if, if I'm a Seahawk fan in the highs, but not in the lows, would you say I'm an authentic Seahawk fan? If I'm wearing my jersey every week during the highs, we're going to make the playoffs. I love you, Russell. And we're, we're in the playoffs, and we're, we're going to the Super Bowl, and you're like, man, Brandon's always talking about the Seahawks. He's always got his jersey on. He's, like, inviting me over to his house all the time. Next season, we're terrible. I don't have my jersey on. I'm avoiding the games. I don't talk about the Seahawks. Would you go, yeah, Brandon's, like, an authentic Seahawks fan? No. It's the same with our relationship with Jesus. If we're on fire for the Lord when things are going great, and it's like, oh, things are easy. I love the Lord. I'm talking about Jesus all the time. My God, times are happening all the time. Like, I'm just so in the word. When things are going good, all your friends know you're talking about him. You love him. And then a season of pain comes. A season of suffering comes, and it's hard to follow the Lord. And all of a sudden, I, I don't want to be in the Bible. I, I don't want to talk about the Lord. My friends don't really think I'm a Christian anymore. 
I think there's a lot of us who don't realize we desire some things more than Christ until we're truly tested. I really believe there's so many of us we don't realize we desire something more than Christ until we, we experience suffering. Maybe it's a romantic relationship. Maybe it's your career, your vocation, your degree. Maybe it's an idea of comfort, financial security. Your looks, I don't know. Until we're tested and that relationship starts going sour. And maybe I'm not going to be with that person too much longer. Or I'm really struggling in, in my degree. This is too hard. Or I'm looking at like a life of not making that much money. Until we're tested, we don't realize, oh my gosh, I want this more than I want Jesus. And God will invite that and say, who do you love more? Scripture said you can't serve God and money. I couldn't serve comfort in God. God was like, who do you love more, Brandon? How are you going to respond? Worship team, you guys can come up as we come to a conclusion um, with our third and final point about why we suffer, why God allows suffering. Suffering draws us closer to Jesus. I believe that there's a certain closeness to Christ after suffering. If you think about it, if just even going through, like, like in my marriage, like Meredith and I going through a season of suffering, guess what? We come out of it, and I love her more. She loves me more. But if we go through a season of suffering, and we avoid each other, we don't spend time together, the, the simple presence of being in the same room reminds us of our suffering, and we kind of just distance ourselves, I'm, I'm not going to feel very close to my wife in a season of suffering. How do you respond in a season of suffering to Jesus? Do you remain close to him where he wants to be? Or do you distance yourself and say, like, I'm just... I don't need you right now. I don't want you right now. Imagine a season of suffering where you're pressing into Jesus. You're, you're actually spending more time in the word in the hardest season than maybe in the easiest seasons. That you're praying more in the hardest season than you are in the easiest season. Jesus wants to be close to you in a season of suffering. He wants you to surrender and trust him even when it seems so hard. In closing, I just want to invite you guys to reflect on some application questions tonight. I just want to simply ask, do you expect a life of suffering? You were to say, Lord, honestly, like, I, I really thought I had to get at a jail-free card. Do you expect a life of suffering? Do you expect your life, you might suffer more for the kingdom of God than if you're not in the kingdom? I want to ask, what, what if anything would you struggle right now to count as a loss compared to Christ. You're looking at your life, you're looking at everything in your life, and you're going, compared to, actually, there are multiple things that I count as a gain more than I do Christ. Share the example of a relationship, a career, financial security, comfort, looks, anything. Would you struggle to count as a loss? Is something not, this is actually not as, as important as my relationship to Christ. If you want to follow Jesus, you won't make it to the end, if that's true won't make it to the last lap. You'll want, you'll want to quit. Uh, and then last but not least, I just want to ask, how can you begin and continue to expect and embrace suffering? How can you begin or continue to expect and embrace suffering in your life? And with that, I'm going to pray, and then I'll pass it off to the worship team. Jesus, you are, and you're just so worthy of our suffering.
and uh, we don't we don't act like suffering is like a cakewalk. It's an easy an easy existence. Um, there's a lot of us in the room who are going through really hard things right now, and um, and Lord, we just we want to experience your your character growth. We want to experience um, your your vision and getting us through it. And Jesus, I just pray, Holy Spirit, would you just press into the hearts tonight who maybe are saying there's something more important than Christ. And Lord, I just believe you. the heart pounds, the, the, we get a little bit sweaty and uncomfortable. But Lord, I just pray, would you help us to see if there's anything that we would say that I can't count that as a loss. And it's creating a stumbling block in the laps that I'm trying to take as I, as I run for the prize of knowing you, Christ Jesus. You are worthy to run the race with no stumbling blocks. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would move. You'd help us to minister to one another. You'd, you'd serve us tonight. We'd, we'd serve you. We'd love you. We'd hear from you. Jesus, thank you for Paul's faithfulness in writing. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen.